Welcome to Life Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, all-inclusive recovery podcast. My name is Denise and I'm your host. Today, I have a great guest with me, someone I've been really looking forward to. It's Mary Beth O'Connor. She is the author of From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Um, Mary Beth is a director, secretary, founding investor for She Recovers Foundation and director for Life Ring Secular Recovery. A graduate of Berkeley Law School in 2014, she was appointed a federal administrative law judge and retired in 2020. She's been sober since 1994. So I'm really glad to have you with us today, Mary Beth. We've been looking forward to it for some time. I have been. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it as well. And I'm glad that we had a chance to meet briefly before. Uh, some guests, the first time I see them is when, um, you know, we come for the interview. Now, definitely to get right into it, um, I just really, really find that the book was, for me, really helpful. It, it opened a lot of um, avenues for me that I was not aware of, a lot of programs, a lot of more forward thinking. Um, now, how about we stop with one thing that really caught me from the book right from the beginning. And it's kind of maybe to do with addiction in a large way, maybe not, but you really emphasized that you didn't have a bond with your mother. And, you know, that relationship is the first relationship we ever have. And that was a common uh, bond that I had with uh, your book and how that just affects all the relationships in our lives. Now, you also said that at age 16, you were into math. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can tell people what a little bit of that was like and what made you turn to recovery when you thought that recovery was a good option for you. What was the last days of your addiction? So um, a couple of thoughts about that. One is that in the book, I really wanted to show sort of what led up to me picking up drugs at an early age. I mean, I started alcohol when I was 12 and I was using meth at 16 and shooting meth at 17. And that thing can happen in a vacuum, right? And I just felt like a lot of memoirs sort of skip over the, the context of why that made sense to me. And it was to do with trauma. I mean, my mom was violent and my stepfather was much more violent, but it also was that lack of connection with my mother. I was left at a nunnery for the first six months of my life and later for three years with my great grandmother, but mostly she just wasn't focused on me. And so I knew at a young age that I was really sort of, I was on my own. You know, there wasn't any support. There was no one who was going to pay attention or on my side. And that was a part of the source of the anxiety that I developed as well as the trauma. So I do view them sort of maybe not equally impactful. Uh, my my husband, for example, told told me that I reminded him of the monkeys, you know, that never got held as babies. <laughs> you know, like there was yeah. that sort of... Yeah physical um, lack of connection and closeness and, and a desire for it, but also a feeling of being completely alone. And that impacted a large parts of my life. Um, and I when, think also that lack of bonding does because, you know, we go out into the world and navigate through the world. And it, I mean, if we don't have that early bonding, whatever the reason, the thing is, is that it makes it very difficult to have work relationships, have friendships, have anything, because basically it's almost like we didn't get the rule book. 
That's true. And the other thing was that when we moved in with my stepfather, he was very violent. I knew I couldn't turn to her. Right. So there was no there was no safety net for me. There was no one to turn to when things went wrong. I remember when I had uh, my I moved in with a violent boyfriend and somebody later said to me, well, did you tell your mother? And it's like it didn't occur to me to tell these things to my mother because I knew she wasn't going to be there. And it did. It, it was part of that sense that the world was a risk. Like for me, I, I had PTSD, which I didn't realize until I got sober. I had a severe anxiety, but a lot of it was that underlying sense of distrust of the world that that any at any second it could blow up in my face and I could lose everything. And it was just always this fear that I was on the cusp of destruction. Yeah. And I think as well, I've experienced for many, many years and still do. A degree of anxiety and you know when you're when you have high anxiety from trauma from conditioning from whatever the situation is the world does not seem like a safe place and you know i went through the world as well with on on fight or flight and so you know that's where for me the alcohol gave me a real calming fact and everything else so you your addiction obviously progressed after and i think it's really important to say that, you know, we often hear that the addiction is a symptom of other things. So, you know, I think it's important to look back at these things and see what things have occurred in our lives and experiences, because I know that a lot of that impacted my my addiction. So once you realized your addiction was like out of control, and I don't want to give a lot of the book away because you talk in a lot of detail about it, and it's really good content. Um, once you realize that you were at that point of not really being able to get out of the addiction what happened for you what made you think that you'd go to recovery and where did you go so for, um for me i didn't get sober until i was 32 so it was a long haul from shooting meth to the first time until that point and i was really having sort of a combination of problems i was having physical problems from you know the toxicity of all that meth i was really just emotionally depleted. I, I was hopeless. My, my partner was ready to throw me out. It was everything. I couldn't hold a job. It was just all of it in combination where I finally said, you know, what if I go to rehab? Um, and that was when I was 32. So it was a long struggle to get to that point. And then I looked, I had a look, I didn't have insurance. I, I didn't have money. And so it took me a while to find a program that I could actually go into. Uh, and this is in 93, I went into rehab, but I did, I did go into a longer term program. It was a 90 day minimum women's program. And so that seemed to me, even in my sort of fog of, of meth uh, cloud, I, I thought that a longer program would probably be the better option because I knew I was pretty much at the severe end of this. It wasn't like, um, you know, I sort of had a problem with drugs. I mean, I had cumulative multiple uh, significant impacts. And so I went into a 90 day minimum women's program and I ended up staying for five months. And before you carry on to where you found help, I just want to ask you something because I just don't know the answer to this. Um, you know, luckily for me, alcohol was the only thing I was dealing with. So you're saying that you started with meth at age 16 and you stopped at 32. So you had 16 years of meth use. And is that not like, aren't most people kind of possibly even dead by that point? Isn't that an ex extremely long period of time? 
It's a it's a long period of time, although it's not unusual that people get sober in their 30s. And it's not that unusual that people start drugs young, especially if they have a trauma history, right? If the trauma history significantly increases your odds of developing a substance use disorder, and often that trauma is childhood trauma. So it is on the it is a long on the longer end. Uh, I'm just and thinking I, for survival. Yes. It just well, seems to be a long period of time, 16 years. That's really hard going. You know, it's not just a few years, it's a long time to me. It just seems like amazing to me that you survive 16 years of that type of drug use. Well, and part of it was simply luck. And I don't mean just the drug use, but sort of the risky situations that you end up in when you're around people who use drugs, you know, dangerous people sometimes, being with people alone that you, you really shouldn't be. So part of my survival was just pure luck. And then there were things like I did use the needle exchange uh, the last few years of shooting meth. It, was, um, it wasn't legal yet. I lived near San Francisco, but because of HIV, uh, San Francisco tolerated it. And so when I got sober, I didn't have HIV, I didn't have hep C, I didn't have any of the bloodborne diseases. And that certainly made my life expectancy better. Right. And it and it made my recovery less complicated than if I would have had all those other complications on top of it. Right. Wow. You're pretty lucky. Yes, I was lucky. And things have changed since that time as well now with the drugs and you know, the safe drugs and everything like this, you know, and the, and all the injection sites. So, I mean, things have changed. Things are probably a, a lot more dangerous and a lot more risky, but I mean, it's amazing what you survived and what you came through. So when you, you decided to go into a long-term uh, recovery and how did that work out? Well, it wasn't the right fit for me. So in my mind, I was going in for medical treatment. But when I got there, it turned out that it was exclusively a 12-step house. I mean, I didn't even know to ask that question. I just assumed I was going to get sort of robust medical treatment. And uh, they they were really adamant that the 12-step option was the only way. They told me there was, they literally told me nothing else existed. And it was a problem because I don't believe in a higher power. I didn't agree I was powerless. I wasn't going to turn over my will in my life. There was just multiple reasons why it wasn't the right fit. And so it was a real dilemma because on one hand, I know my brain is foggy because I've been using meth for 16 years. But on the other hand, I know this isn't going to work for me. And so I really had to stand back and think about what, you know, how am I going to how am I going to respond to this? What am I going to do to try to get some recovery, even though they told me basically that it was impossible if I didn't comply with everything that they told me to do in every aspect of 12 steps. So then what did you do? I mean, I, I really, I decided that what I was going to do was just look for the parts I could use and, you know, ignore everything else. And so I did read all of the big book and I read all the NA text and, and all the other books actually. And, and I actively participated in rehab and I pulled out the parts I thought would be helpful to me, but it was still scary when I was faced with this really universal opinion that I was going to fail. I mean, they literally told me I would fail if I didn't do it their way. Um, and so when I got home and I, for the younger people, I'll emphasize it's now 94 and there's no Google. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, is it really true that there aren't any other options? And I went to the library and it turned out there were options even in 1994. And so I found Women for Sobriety, which still exists. I found Rational Recovery, which exists a little, but basically is life ring, secular recovery. I found, I'm sorry, Rational Recovery is basically smart. 
I found SOS, which exists a little bit, is now lifering basically. And then, um, and so I did the same thing. I got all their materials. I read everything. I went to meetings and I synthesized what I was learning into a program that I thought would be the right fit for me, something I thought would work for me. And I think that's the important part is that no matter what path a person chooses. Now, I was about 10 years ahead of you, so or behind, I guess, in 1983. Um, there were no treatment centers, there were no other options. And I think a lot of the things you're speaking of had not yet started up um, or had, you know, people weren't aware of it. So, you know, there were only, you know, certain options. So, you know, I think the most important thing you're saying is no matter what path and whatever information you can get your hands on, read it, you know, take what you want, leave the rest literally if it doesn't work for you. But I think for recovery, it's a unique journey it's a lifelong journey and the thing is it's got to be tailor-made to the person it's like you know joining the gym and saying okay I'm going to go to the gym five days a week but you know you're not like so you know it's not going to work so find something put a specialized unique program together for yourself of daily practices that you know are going to work so that's great that you were able to do that now you did mention um Life Ring, I do know that you are a director uh, for Life Ring, and we did have Michael on talking about it, and they've been around for 25 years. So are you still on that board? And uh, why don't you let everybody know, I think you're on the She Recovered, Recovers board too. So why don't you could tell us a bit about that? So I am still on the Life Ring board and, um, you know, Life Ring is basically, it's a secular approach and we focus on the, they call it the personal recovery plan. That that terminology didn't exist, but that's exactly what I did. And so it's an idea that everyone is unique and what works for you might not work for me, but they also have materials. If you want some guidance, there's a workbook you can work through to do the analysis and figure out a good plan. And the group, the meetings are there to support the members and to help them, you know, think it through or make suggestions. So it's, uh, it's still a, a mutual support. It does, you know, personal plan doesn't mean plan by yourself. So it's still that communal aspect. And, and then she recovers foundation actually Fills a slightly different space in the recovery community because she recovers isn't just for substance recovery. It's also for recovery from other behavioral disorders like eating, from um, self-harm, from trauma, from mental health, from grief, overwork, all of these things together in one place. Because as we know, most women with a substance use disorder have one or more of these other things to work on as well. Um, and even 20% of She Recovers members don't even have a substance use disorder. It's just the other things. But I, I try to show my book and She Recovers emphasizes that the, the, the recovery in those other areas is sort of, there's an interplay between that and our substance recovery, right? If we want to live our best life and, you know, be all we can be, <laughs> um, that really we need to recover from all of it. And in She Recovers, you can talk about that interplay and you can talk about all those different types of recovery in one space. And it also sounds in She Recovers that um, it may be a space as well where people can go and they can they can be recovering and dealing with all these different avenues. And maybe if they haven't gone into those that space addictions would have occurred and you know so it's kind of a good place too to go where it's almost like a preventative you know um because a lot of people I think develop 
substance use disorders a lot of the times too some of it's environmental some of it is you know it just depends but if they go like you say and are dealing with the trauma and dealing with different things I mean what a great resource to have and maybe really you know save themselves a lot of pain and a lot of grief and maybe a full-blown addiction later so I just think that it's great to know these things are out there personal um, recovery planning. I mean, isn't that what we're all doing anyway? I mean, isn't our daily routines and our daily disciplines that we use for ourselves to remain in recovery? It's all about personal recovery planning. So what I really liked about the book is I liked the, the language that, you know, you were using. Um, I think words and language can really make a difference. Like, for example, a person in recovery is so positive. It sounds like I'm in the solution. I'm doing something about something. Um, that's just my own personal thing rather than, well, I'm a drug addict or I'm an alcoholic. It tends to have a more stigmatized sound to it to me. So don't you think language is really important and that these things really have a positive language? Well, when I talk to um, to groups, for example, I, I usually use the term substance use disorder, and I explain to them that the reason is that it sort of puts it more in the medical box where it belongs, right? That it's like a person with a substance use disorder, like a person with diabetes or a person with depression. And so I think it is important. The new terminology, I think, is more accurate, and it puts it where it belongs. But the other thing I'll say is, um, you know, I use junkie in the title of my book, and I thought about that long and hard because I would never use that term for somebody else. But one of the reasons I chose to do it was because I really, I feel, I see in the media that there's, um, let's say when they show uh, people who are shooting meth, it's that they're presented as if, if they are beyond our understanding, they, they're, they are so far beyond the pale. They are so far gone. We, we can't help them, but they don't deserve our empathy or our sympathy. And I really chose to use that term to really connect myself to, to, to those people to say, I am her, you know, and I got sober and I got recovery and I have 29 years and I became a judge to try to it's part of the stigma reduction um, reasoning, uh, which was part of why I wrote the book in the first place, right? So the junkie to judge, I hope it's part of showing the arc of my recovery, but also to help to reduce the stigma by saying sort of who we are in the middle, what we're using and who we can be in recovery are two different things. But regardless, that woman on television who's in that house that's a mess and she's shooting meth, I understand her. I love her. We need to help her if we can. Well, and I think that, you know, that's what I often think is I'm living very close to an injection site. And this morning, as a matter of fact, outside my window, someone overdosed and someone came with naloxone and they um, came and got the person on their feet and on their way. And, uh, you know, these are people's sons, daughters, brothers. Uh, everybody has a story. You know, I just think that what you're saying is really true is that to identify with, you know, that person is me or that person is someone's brother or son or, you know, it's not, they're not just the addiction because I think what happens is people, it's easy for them just to see the addiction and they no longer see the person. And I see it in families. I see it with everyone with children. You know, they no longer see the son or daughter. They just see the addiction. 
And as a society, you know, people are walking by. I just think to myself, you know, I would love to stop and talk to all, each person almost because everyone has a story and everybody, you know, we're just all the same. Yeah, and that is part of the reason I included the trauma as well, because I think America underappreciates the trauma and mental health connection to substance use disorder. I mean, such a high percentage of the people that develop a side do have a trauma history or do have mental health challenges. And if 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 that was better appreciated, maybe there would be a little more sympathy and understanding that this is um and that this is not people aren't picking up because it's a happy solution, but they're already in trouble and it does seem to work in the beginning. It's, you know, there's an understandable context to it. When when I first used alcohol, I kept I kept pursuing it because I felt better. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was a yeah. positive experience. So I wanted more. I didn't have mo very many moments of feeling joyful or light. And that's what the drugs gave me initially, not later, but in the beginning. And so there is a reason that these things happen. And if that's better understood, then maybe there'll be less stigma around substance use disorder. Well, I sure wish that in 1983, I had a book like this. And, um, you know, had so much information. I strongly, strongly recommend people to get the book. Anyone starting in any type of recovery, the book is very educational. It's very, very real. And it really answered a lot of questions for me that I had not, you know, had a resource to look into. You know, I, as I said, I was always dealing just with alcohol. I mean, when I went into a recovery situation a few years after I had stopped drinking you know I thought oh my god don't mix me up with drug addicts I mean that's that was my experience and so you know this book is just a really good resource for people um it it not only gives the facts it gives the emotion you give your experience and you also like you said your substance gave you the relief and the substance made you changed how you felt but also you're showing here that there's many paths to recovery that will change that as well. And you've gone on if you're living a very full and joyful and exciting life that comes out when you're speaking. And so I just really want to thank you for coming by today and talking a little bit about the book. And we don't want to say too much about it because we want people to get it. I got mine on Amazon. So uh, any last minute um comments that you would have you you're touring now or you've been traveling have you for your book signings and what how are things going and have you got any last minute uh closing comments that you want to make mary beth yeah i mean if anyone's interested in seeing where i'll be i keep my website updated junketedjudge.com but but i will say you know 30 percent of my book is about recovery it's really goes through my first three years and it's the substance recovery and the trauma recovery and i felt that it was important to sort of and particularly because i didn't do it the 12-step way that it was important to show what that was like you know sort of show how i was thinking about it and how it progressed but also that interplay with the trauma because that is such a common uh, duality that we that that we have in the recovery community that isn't I think isn't talked about enough so the goal was to make the book useful and I appreciate that you found it to be so and um and I so appreciate your your positive um kudos on the book and your recommendation well it certainly was very useful for me and I know it will be for many others 
And I just really wish you all the best. And hopefully your book tours will eventually get you to Canada. And, uh, you know, we, in the meantime, we'll just pass the word here on the book and I'll make sure that, you know, in people that I come into contact with in Canada, that I at least am passing the word along. And thank you so much, Mary Beth, for your time. I know you've had a busy schedule and I really hope that we have a chance to uh, meet again at some point. Thank you. Thank you. That would be lovely. Take care.